seems like Canadians in general, and this might be a generalization, are conscientious. Whereas Americans are more like, this is my rights. This is my freedom. <laughs> I'm not wearing your, your face burka. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, that's like a, that's a, that's a positive way to put it. You know, maybe we're like, we're, maybe we're not like confident enough sometimes, you know, we're not very assertive. <laughs> we're a little too polite. That's what people, you know, often say. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to discuss in Polite Company. My name is Jose. And I'm also Jose. That's right. We are joined by our one of our favorite co-hosts. Joel is absent. He is He's not present. <laughs> <laughs> I am the substitute host, making, you know, low dollars, and but expected to do all the same work. Exactly. You're... <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming in and pinch hitting for us. We appreciate it. Anytime. You know I love doing it. Uh, this week, um, I'm going to be discussing QAnon with David Lafferty, a contributor to wherepeteris.com. Before we begin, Jose, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories like what's your take on that you know so i always think it's a it's a very kind of interesting like psychological question which i'm sure joe would just like love to dive deep into right but they get this idea that somehow things are wrong and so there must be a purposeful explanation for why that's wrong right Mm -hmm. and and or it's this belief that there's an entity out there that is essentially out to get you, right? The government or, you know, the, the Masons or somebody. And so, well, if they're out to get me, then there's got to be evidence that, that, that that's true, right? Um, I can't just – it can't just be me feeling that way. There's got to be uh, some clear evidence that, that this is happening. Uh, and so, you know, you, you get that kind of thing. You look back to, like, the assassination of Kennedy and how many conspiracies came out of, out of that one event, right, that one act. And – it's people's way of trying to explain it. It couldn't have just been, you know, for lack of a better term, a simple assassination. There had to be some other, you know, subversive thing going on. I don't know. I guess it makes people feel better. I don't know. I think you're right, though. I think to some degree it makes people feel better, but maybe I think it also makes them feel really good about themselves as though oh. I know something. Mm-hmm. I know that the real truth, the secret, and you don't. You're all you're all sheeple. They're, exactly. You're the, the idiots. Man, if you idiots just open your eyes to the real what's happening in this world. Okay, drugstore genius, tell me all about that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what conspiracies do you find really intriguing? Okay, so you, you actually prepped me on this a little bit. Um, so my most recent favorite conspiracy theory is anything related to COVID-19. You know, that it was created in a lab in China and spread on purpose or that COVID is spread through 5G wireless network systems. And these kind of like conspiracies only cause people to freak out more about something they should already be concerned about. Right. And then it takes those 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 people who are the believers so far past the freak out where they don't care anymore. And that's where you get the the laxed you know, social distancing and mask wearing and people who are out there having good times and having, you know, end of the world parties and that kind of stuff. And as we've seen in state after state and county after county, that just leads to higher numbers, higher cases. 
and eventually higher death rates. And so this is one of those conspiracy theories that if you fall for it, it actually can lead to really bad things for people who don't subscribe to that same level of theory. Yeah. And that's scary. It has practical implications in yeah. the real world. Yeah, it's not just your crazy uncle, right? It's like real stuff could happen. Yeah, and it's the number, the volume of mm -hmm. people who follow that that's problematic. So Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And, and you see it, you know, in certain pockets more uh, prevalent than others, right? And it's just like, oh, my God, come on, people. Yeah. You, you're probably like me. You watch Governor Newsom. He's on, you know, his press conference is basically just like wagging his finger at us. Like, get your together, California. It's so sad. And <laughs> he's... So well-spoken and, and, you know, very articulate. He's really intelligent. He's, he's probably too intelligent for, <laughs> for his own good at times, <laughs> you know? But yeah. he's, he's so exasperated with all of us. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> we were flattening the curve. We were getting better. And you ruined it. Yes, you ruined it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's my favorite, most recent conspiracy theory or set of theories. And I, I kind of follow it because... When I hear somebody say something, I want to make sure that I have accurate information to respond, right? The only thing worse than the conspiracy theory is a non-conspiratorial response that has no basis. Because then you just reinforce the theory, the conspiracy. Like, oh, this guy's full of crap. So, so then my all-time favorite yeah. conspiracy theory has got to be the moon landing. 1968, man lands on the moon, super awesome. Whole world celebrates this event, and then, like, probably the next day, the conspiracy theories start. Now, here, here's the craziest part about this, Jose. We're living in what, two, 19 or 2020, right? 2020. Yeah. In 1999, a survey was done to determine well, how many people really don't believe in the moon landing. Six percent of Americans, six out of a hundred humans with brains, didn't believe that yeah. man actually landed on the moon, and about five percent. We're kind of like eh, iffy about it. Wow. Right? You think, well, that's pretty insane, right? Okay. That same survey was done last year in 2019. It's up to 10%. And guess where the majority of them lie in the age spectrum? Um, I'm going to go like 21 to 34. In the younger range, you're right. Older people remember it or remember hearing the stories about it or remember it as part of their, their, um, their, their history and social studies instruction. Younger people... Nope, never happened, right? Wow. Okay, so and, and one of the one of the reasons why this has continued to be my favorite conspiracy of all time is because it blends right in to the flat Earth idiots. Yes, it does. Right? So if you don't believe in the moon landing, you probably don't believe in things like gravity, which means you probably believe in flat Earth. <laughs> and last year when they did the survey. A lot of non-believers in moon landing were big believers in flat Earth. And here's the, here's the best part of this. Ready? About 75% of those who don't believe that we landed on the moon do believe in aliens and that they've actually, we've actually been visited sometime in the past. That makes no sense. <laughs> so you believe there's aliens. Yeah. Not that we've been to space. Yeah. I don't even – it's insane. So anyway, that's my that's my favorite conspiracy, which layers into another favorite conspiracy. You know that you know round the round Earth believers are somehow keeping the flat Earthers down. Like I, I don't even get that. So anyway, that's mine, right? How about you, Jose? What's your favorite conspiracy? Oh, you mentioned it already. My favorite <laughs> is the JFK assassination. Oh, really? Now, why? Why is that like the theme that comes out for you? So. 
I love history, and one of my favorite presidents is John F. Kennedy, mm -hmm. uh, even though he had a short term in office yeah. because he was, he was assassinated. Nonetheless, I'm fascinated by him and his brother, Robert Kennedy, as well. But the assassination just gripped me. And the deeper I got into it, Cuba and Russia and the mob, you know, all these shady characters somehow all came together to assassinate the president. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like Occam's razor doesn't ever come into consideration, like the simplest explanation. Uh, uh -huh. Just Lee Harvey Oswald is just this crazy bastard <laughs> who had motive and opportunity and he took it. No, it has to be, you know, Sam Giancana in Chicago is pissed. And so he uses Cuban, you know, <laughs> complicated. But it, it's so fascinating to me that uh, we just can't accept certain tragedies. There has to be a larger insidious plot behind yes. the scenes. Exactly. Now, do you watch the documentaries and the movies that are based on the assassination just as, you know, looking for historical facts and craziness and that kind of stuff? Sometimes, because I have so much knowledge in this regard, mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that's not true, or that's like a mis <laughs> you know, misrepresentation. Or, But uh, JFK, the movie by Oliver Stone, it is so bad. <laughs> it's just <laughs> full of fabrications. And they make this crazy guy down in uh, New Orleans. They make him kind of like the hero, right, played by um, Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he was insane. Now, have you seen, there's a, a short series, I think it only lasted one season, with James Franco about, uh, was it James Franco? Yeah. He's yeah. a time traveler, and he goes back to, to it was 64, right? 63. 63. So I think the show is actually called 63, and he, he time travels back to 1963 from modern time through a, um, a walk-in refrigerator in a roadside diner. <laughs> Interesting. That's, that's the time machine. I think I've and, heard of that. Was that by Stephen King? I think it is. Is it maybe? I think it is. And his whole thing, he realizes that he has to stop the assassination of Kennedy. Uh, and yeah, it's it's actually pretty cool. You got to watch it. I'll add it to my list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, add it to your list. I'll add it to my list of things to watch. <laughs> All right, so that was kind of a bird walk. But before we move into our Fred talk, what are you drinking? So today's Friday when we're recording this. So it's Mutualata Friday. So I had some 805s in the fridge, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to drink those by themselves. And I happened to have, you know, a, a really kind of a zesty Bloody Mary mix that I used to help me make my mucheladas. I had a little more Worcestershire in there, some, you know, some pink sea salt, and a little dash of this and that. And so I've had one or two of those today as my, my Friday afternoon delight. Ah, that sounds really good. I am drinking this Bailey's Martini. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's, Ooh, is your is your pinky up when you do drink that? It's way <laughs> up, yeah. It's it's Bailey's creme de cacao and vodka. Um, if I was really fancy, I would garnish it with like chocolate shavings, but uh, I don't have chocolate. Well, so. I love that you're actually using a a, a Y shaped uh, martini glass. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that looks legit. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good too. So, oh, cheers to that. Cheers. Now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. 
In this segment of our show, Jose and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be a bit loquacious, so that isn't a strict time limit. Uh, this week, I will discuss, this is kind of a philosophical attempt to understand the word freedom. We kind of talked about the coronavirus a minute ago. There have been about 2.7 million cases in the U.S., um, 130,000 deaths and rising. And I think part of the problem, as we mentioned, is that one, there's a conspiracy element to it, and two, people are overly concerned about their freedom, right? But I think people have the wrong understanding of what freedom means. They have, instead of freedom in mind, they have what's called license, which means do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Freedom and uh, St. John Paul II, or Pope John Paul II, defined freedom um, not as the ability to do whatever we want, but the right to do what we ought to do. And so freedom, therefore, means we have obligations, we have responsibilities. And so when we take freedom as, I'll just do whatever I want, you, don't, you can't tell me what to do. And that's why we're seeing opposition to basic health guidelines right? Like masks, social distancing. We're all pissed when stores close. Um, we see those things. Well, Americans see those things as impositions on their freedom. You know, we see videos of people having meltdowns in Costco, the Karens having meltdowns in Trader Joe's, right? Screaming at employees who dare to ask them to put a mask on. But uh, if we really, truly believed that freedom was the, the right to do what we ought to do, then we would wear masks, right? We would um, act in a way that is considerate of others, that is that is out of love for others, instead of being selfish and being politically motivated, right, to put our, ourselves first and to only think about our, ourselves. So, yeah, if we follow the true meaning of freedom, do what we ought to do, then I think we will see the coronavirus start to, uh, the curve start to go down. But if we keep acting selfishly, this uh, curve is going to continue spiking upward. And uh, yeah, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Yep, I absolutely agree with you. And that's that's super important for folks to really kind of wrap their head around this idea of, you know, you see those bumper stickers, right? Freedom isn't free. Yeah. But it doesn't mean you can just do whatever the heck you want whenever you want either. There's an obligation well, that we're yeah. forgetting. Yeah. And so I think those folks who really kind of glom onto that whole concept of freedom isn't free. We usually reference that and associate when we associate that with military service, right? Right. But wearing your mask, social distancing, those are the freedom isn't free kind of things right now, right? If I want to go out into the public and go to Lowe's and buy a new garbage disposal and install it. Yeah. Is that what you did? Which is what I did, you know? <laughs> then I should wear my mask and I should keep my distance from other folks and I should wash my hands often, right? That's my freedom isn't free, but the idiots don't get that. No, they don't. They really don't. And it's making it worse. Yes, definitely making it worse. What do you got this week for us? Okay, so I'm actually going to pull a Jose. Ah, nice. Right? So, <laughs> so the thing that I've actually kind of been tracking this a little bit lately is this, um, maybe some of you heard about this. There's a, there's a, a teenager uh, who was an Italian boy who died recently, um, actually died in 2006. He is on track to become the patron saint of the internet. Oh, wow. Cool. Yes. So he died when he was 15 years old. Um, he was, you know, a computer whiz, really into computers and that kind of thing. And that was like his jam. His name is Carlos Acutis, A-C-U-T-I-S, Carlos Acutis. And, um, he died of leukemia. 
in 2006, so it's been about 14 years. And really shortly afterwards, there was this campaign to to um, to get him to become a saint. So it's the beatification, right? Is that the right word, Jose? Correct, that's, yeah. That's the process. And so he already has, uh, in order to to complete the beatification process and move to, towards sainthood, you have to have two accredited miracles, right, under your belt. Mm-hmm. So he already has one. His first miracle is, that he's credit, credited with is healing a six-year-old Brazilian boy who just inexplicably in 2013 recovered from a congenital uh, deformation of his pancreas, right? So something – it was just assumed that's you – you have a deformed pancreas, kid. That's it for you. And all of a sudden now after a visit from, from – um, after praying to Carlos and having visions of a visit from him, he was uh-huh. healed. Okay. Wow. So I don't know what the second one is, but that's actually they're working on that right now. And so they really are expecting the second one to be, uh, however they they like verify it, right? So the second one is already in the pike. They're doing the paperwork on that. If they can do the com- if they can complete the verification process, the uh-huh. verification process, then he is on track to be one of the few few teen saints, and will be wow. the first saint of the internet. So when you are trying to connect your Wi-Fi or that that USB cable just doesn't seem to fit or when you swear that that you've been on Zoom 95 times, the 96 times it's not going to work, then you can say a short little prayer to St. Bacutus asking him to help you get your Internet act together. That is amazing. So, you know, like you could get like a St. Anthony medal or a St. Christopher medal. Uh-huh. Maybe if, if St. Carlos actually makes it all the way through the process, then you can get like a, um, a St. Carlos uh, um, thumb drive or, a, you know, yeah. or a cable. <laughs> yeah, the, the medal of him would be like at his computer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, why not? Right. Patron saint of the Internet. So, I mean, I don't know. Usually the, the beatification process or the the. When they actually they do the canonization, usually it's like a big whip. But in this era of COVID, maybe it'll just be a big Zoom. And we yeah. all just lock on. <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That I had not heard of that. Oh, I knew something you didn't about religion. That's awesome. That's that my is. right there. Boom. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> Someone that's watching you And still the government won't admit They fake the whole moon landing Thought control race psychotronics So in this segment of our show We are joined by D.W. Lafferty A contributor to WherePeterIs.com To discuss QAnon And its relationship um, to the Catholic Church Vis-a-vis, I would say, the disgraced Archbishop Vigano Thank you for joining us, Dave um, no problem. I also want to thank Mike Lewis for letting us borrow you for this conversation. Hey, it's all, <laughs> it's all good. But I, I promised Mike that uh, I would plug uh, where Peter is. So um, if you're interested in the latest uh, news regarding Pope Francis, the Catholic Church, uh, come to wherepeteris.com. That is wherepeteris.com, which you can find on Patreon. Got to get that Patreon money. Oh, yeah. Subscribers get bonus content, too. Nice. I, someday we've got to do a Patreon. Um, before we dive in, Dave, maybe you could take a minute and just let our listeners know a little bit more about you. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Ottawa. I've, I've been interested in conspiracy theory a long time. That's something that um, we're talking about. So I guess I can talk about my 
history in relation to conspiracy theory, I completed a, a PhD program in a program called Cultural Mediations in Ottawa at Carleton University. And it was essentially a, an English studies program or comparative literature style program. But I, I studied an author named Wyndham Lewis. Uh, he was a real, he's not all that well known by the general public, but I think he was one of the real geniuses of the 20th century. Uh, and he was one of the modernist writers of the early 20th century uh, into the mid 20th century. His contemporaries were people like James Joyce and Ezra Pound. And Lewis, at one period in his life, um, along with his friend Ezra Pound, um, delved into the world of conspiracy theory. Ezra Pound went much further into it, and, and Lewis sort of pulled himself back uh, before he was completely red-pilled, I guess you'd say. And so that's how I, I, I got interested in it, because I wanted to understand how Lewis was drawn into that, why conspiracy theory was such a phenomenon among some uh, modernist authors, Ezra Pound in, in particular. And then later on, I, I got into the field of, uh, after doing my thesis on, on Wyndham Lewis, I got into the field of conspiracy theory study. So this is the, the academic study of conspiracy theory. And I wrote on a, a paper on a British author named uh, Douglas Reed, who was a very popular author in the 1930s, late 1930s, who eventually fell into conspiracy theory and anti-Semitic conspiracy theory in particular. And I sort of traced the development of, of his conspiratorial narratives through his early texts. And, and that helped me to, to get a grasp, first of all, on the, the field of conspiracy theory studies, so to learn a bit about its history and some of the most productive ways of looking at it. And it also encouraged me to pay attention to what's going on now and try to look at see if there are conspiracy theories out there that are forming, uh, you know, as we speak. And and there are, there are, there absolutely are. And I think we're actually probably in a bit of a golden age of conspiracy theory right now. Um, and a lot of it is, is driven by social media. I mean, we can't overstate just how wonderful the internet has been for conspiracy theorists. They started off very quickly on the internet. Uh, in, the, in the early 90s, I, I remember when I first got on the internet, that was you know some of the stuff that I found right away. And they've made very good use of social media, and, and especially uh, social media has become a real sort of breeding ground for conspiracy theory and the QAnon conspiracy theory in particular, which we'll we'll look at today. So that's that's my that's my basic background. I guess you could say I'm a, a bit of an academic. I, I'm no longer no longer a uh, sort of professional academic, uh, but I, I still I still do it on the on the side. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. Transitioning into our our main topic, I kind of want to start with this question. It sounds like you're the right person to ask. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about Americans that makes them so susceptible to conspiracy theories? Well, I don't know if I th you know. I think people have been trying to pin that down for a long time because it, it is obvious that you know I think I think Americans are susceptible to conspiracy theories although I should say if you look in say 19th century Europe you're going to see huge numbers of people um, engaged in, in conspiracy theory thinking you know relating to uh, Freemasonry and stuff like that but it seemed to take a particular hold in the United States 
there's a, an author named Richard Hofstadter who wrote uh, in 1964, he wrote a classic essay on this topic. I forget what the title is exactly, but it, it's about the paranoid style in American politics. And he thought this was something that was, you know, uniquely American and something that has come up again and again throughout history. And it's, it's a sort of paranoid way of thinking, um, particularly on the, the far right. So it, it has a, a long history. There's the sort of anti-Illuminati thinking in the uh, 19th century and anti-Masonic thinking. There was an anti-Masonic party at one time in the United States. Um, there's anti-Catholic conspiracy theory. And then you get into the, the 1950s, you get the the Red Scare with uh, Joseph McCarthy, and that which involved a, definitely a paranoid style of thinking, but also a lot of a lot of conspiracy theory. Um, more recently, you have the moral panics of the the 1980s, so like the Satanic Panic when uh, everyone was worried that uh, Satanists were out to get their children, that sort of thing. Um, and it turned out that none of this actually was true. There were no you know no reliable reports or evidence of real satanic cults operating in this way, but it gripped the United States for, for a good decade. And then you get the, the New World Order conspiracy theories in the, the 1990s leading to the, the Oklahoma City bombing, right? And I don't know, I, I, it's hard to say what the source of it is. It may have something to do with the relative isolation of the United States compared to the the, the rest of the world. I, I I don't know. It's it's because I'm I'm kind of looking at the United States from the outside. It's it's maybe harder for me to to quite understand why this happens. Um, and it's not actually it's not something limited to the far right. I should say I was kind of following the whole Russia Gate uh, thing in, in 2017 around then 2018, and that was more on the liberal side of things. Um, but I kind of felt like it was. I mean, there there was some truth to it, but at the same time, it became almost like a new McCarthyism, you know, like a new Red Scare. People were were worried about this, this sort of infiltration of Russian agents into the American political system, into the media, and I guess it's that narrative of of infiltration that's the uh, that's the thing that's at issue it's it's the idea that some outside force will come and take away the, the sort of the basic freedoms um that people enjoy in, in the united states it's always fascinated me and I, I don't know what the origin of it is there is something uniquely um characteristic to the american the collective american mindset or spirit something that is intrigued by conspiracy theories um, and you're a Canadian. Does this happen there to the extent that it happens here? I don't think, I mean, we, we, we do get a lot of, like we, we consume a lot of American media, right? And so when we, and when we're on social media, we're getting a lot of American stuff coming through like on Twitter. So we're getting a lot of the same material coming through. So yeah, there's going to be people who are picking up on some of that, like people who watch Alex Jones and, and that sort of thing. I don't see it entering our politics as much um it seems to be more on the level of, of the individual you know there's lots of people who get into this but but not quite on the in the same scale and the same intensity that you get in the united states i, I should say we do we do have cults here we do <laughs> um we've got, it, there's been some interesting cults that have ended up in uh, quebec i don't know why in particular quebec but uh i mean it, it, the united states you're it was built on this idea that you could sort of be free from the kind of the 
bonds of, of tradition and um, history and you could start anew and create a, something new on a sort of blank slate sort of level, um, which can be really freeing, but at the same time, it can let the mind wander in some really strange ways. And I mean, within the history of the US, there's some examples of, you know, big religious awakenings that have happened, um, you know, new religious movements popping up, cults, everything. So I think it's maybe because it's it's such a blank slate, you know, the, um, unencumbered by maybe some of the, the more kind of traditional ways of thinking that it allows for this kind of thing to, to flourish. Yeah, I think you're you're on to something there, just this kind of anti-authority or distrust of authority that's just baked into the American cake, if you will. But one of the more recent conspiracy theories um, is this QAnon group. Maybe for the people who don't know who they are, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about who Q is, what QAnon is. Yeah, so I've been following QAnon actually since it it first appeared. Um, again, because you know I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I like to follow these uh, strange things that are going on, and I like to follow a lot of people um, just to see what's going on out there. But yeah, I, I kind of clued into QAnon pretty early and I've been watching it develop. So uh, yeah, I can give you a little bit of a, a background of it. So before we get into like who Q is and that sort of thing, um, I'll, I'll kind of go back a little bit to where it came from. Um, and again, I don't want to exaggerate the number of you know people who are QAnon followers. It's still like a relatively small number of people if you look at like the, the big picture things, right? But there are now a significant number. And I mean, there's even some apparently who are running for office in the US. Um, so it's it's really kind of entering mainstream political discourse in a scary way. But it's a, I guess it's a reflection of some more widespread ways of thinking within the mega movement in general, the Make America Great Again movement, and, and then populist movements elsewhere. So it first emerged as a sort of continuation of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. So Pizzagate happened right around the time of the 2016 election when WikiLeaks um, dropped a whole bunch of uh, emails uh, from John Podesta out into the uh, the internet. Um, and they were combed through by people online looking for scandalous stuff. So uh, what was kind of interesting is that there wasn't actually all that much in it in the emails that was particularly scandalous. Um, so people really started digging and started trying to kind of read between the lines of what was in these emails. And there's some strange words in there that they people interpreted in certain ways. And eventually a kind of mythology developed and people became convinced that John Podesta was a, a pedophile, that the Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, uh, were involved in, in child trafficking and that there were children being held in rooms underneath uh, a restaurant called Comet Pizza in Washington. And this was spread all over the internet, especially by some people who are still around uh, as sort of citizen journalist types, um, like uh, Jack Posobiec uh, from one, he's now with One American News, um, Trump's you know favorite uh, news source, and then uh, Mike Cernovich, uh, so those guys. And that's how they, they really came into the limelight through Pizzagate. Eventually, it sort of died out because people realized um, it was it was so ridiculous. And there was also a time when a person actually entered into this Comet pizza with a gun and uh, looking for the, the children. And so people were realizing, well, this could get out of control. But then it was revived 
a little bit later. So in 2017, when a person just named Q uh, started posting on the 4chan message board. So 4chan at the time, um, I've never actually been on 4chan, but uh, it's a, uh, an, a purely anonymous message board. So you can um, post there without any kind of, you know, anyone having any way of tracing uh, the source of the post. You don't have to, uh, I don't believe anyway, you have to like have a, uh, you don't have to sign in um, and become a, a member or anything like that. Um, so this Q, he claimed that he was a, a highly placed government or, or military official and that he was working with Trump to take down the deep state. So to this day, nobody knows who Q is uh, or if he's multiple people. The, the posts are somehow, I don't know how this works exactly, but they are somehow authenticated. So people know that it is at least the same person um, posting um, most of the time anyway. We, we don't know. Q could be, the, the sort of Q title could have been passed around from person to person. But we haven't really, um, no one's ever really discovered any, any really solid clues as to who's behind it. So this Q kept, kept posting at 4chan. His posts, which became known as Q drops, they're always very cryptic and they're kind of words of encouragement to those who are fighting the deep state, who want to see the deep state go down. And he's got all these predictions about future events relating to Trump and then little hints and codes and links to things on the internet. Um, so people believe that he's working with Trump and these kind of Q fanatics also believe that Trump is sending out coded messages about the Q operations in his tweets. If, you, if you're into QAnon, you're, you're going to go back and forth between really carefully reading the Q drops and carefully reading Trump's tweets. So over time, Q and, and the people who read and interpret his posts and interpret Trump's posts, they built this sort of grand conspiracy narrative. And Q, he makes a lot of predictions that never come true, but he just keeps going and then adjusts the narrative and he tells people to, he's always saying, trust the plan. Um, because, you know, even though it seems like this thing didn't come true, this operation against the deep state didn't happen, it's because we're actually going for a larger target now, you know, so there's always, there's always some kind of excuse for why things aren't happening. And Q also started bringing in these sort of Christian motifs. So kind of, a reflecting a, a bit of a, like an apocalyptic sort of Christian attitude. Um, so it's, it's this kind of maybe, I guess, evangelical style Christian apocalypticism mixed with a sort of Tom Clancy kind of, uh, spy narrative for certain people. That's, that's just like, like crack um so and it's it tends to be mainly among um you know it seems to me there's a lot of baby boomers who are into this uh and uh mega folks big you know very big among uh trump followers so over time a basic narrative developed and i guess you'd call this the kind of standard sort of q narrative and the basic idea behind it and again it's a bit of an extension of pizzagate is the idea that many of the world's elites especially the Democratic Party are involved in in child trafficking on a massive scale, and they are protected by the deep state. These people are basically sort of Luciferian in nature, like they're they're just satanic. What they use these children for is they harvest a chemical called adrenochrome um, from the children that they they kill. They murder these children, and they wow. extract this chemical from them, and then they ingest the chemical somehow. It keeps them young. It gives them sort of unspecified powers. And the idea is that Trump 
he's known about this for a long time because he's you know he's he's, he's He's known a lot of people who are sort of behind the scenes in the entertainment world and uh, in politics, and he's been working to bring them down. and And becoming president was just all part of this this big plan. So he's working along with with Q and and other people to eventually unleash what he calls or what Q calls the storm. So this idea of the storm it comes from a statement that that Trump made about a. Uh, it was when he was talking with some military leaders, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, um, and he said, uh, he made a remark that this was the, the calm before the storm. Um, I think someone mentioned they, they all looked very calm, and he said, it's the calm before the storm. And so people saw that, they, they grabbed onto it, and they said, the storm, you know, that, that must mean the arrests, you know, that must mean the, the, the great operation against the deep state. And so this idea is that there's going to be these mass arrests, after which all the elites you know, including especially Hillary Clinton, John Podesta and those people, they're all going to be imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay or they're going to be executed. Publicly. So, publicly executed. Yeah, they they really, the, the Q people are really waiting for this glorious day when these people are all going to be hung. The idea is that this is going to free the world from the grip of the pedophile elites and then America will be great again, right? The mm -hmm. world will be great again. So it's this idea that we're going to have this, again, it's a very sort of apocalyptic thing that we're going to have this sort of millennium of peace right after we finally get rid of the deep state. The Fourth Reich is what it's. <laughs> yes, it's like the thousand the thousand years of peace that will come. Um, and it, yeah, and, and there are absolutely comparisons to be made to Nazi conspiracy theory. I mean, they, they thought, you know, once... Once we, you know, free the world from the the grip of Jewish conspiracy, the Jews who control uh, Bolshevism, who control the cap, you know, who are the capitalist bankers and all this kind of stuff. Once we take them out, they're kind of like the deep state, right? Then, then everything will be good again. So, there, yeah, there are comparisons to be made. It sounds very cult-like. Is that fair, or am I being too mean? No, it's it's absolutely cult-like. It's um, the. <laughs> As far as I know, there are no Q communities out there, um, but who knows, um, that could happen. But there are certain slogans that they that the Q people use um, that come up in all their Twitter posts, that come up in all their memes. Some of them are, like the most common one, if you see Q stuff online, it's going to probably say WWG1WGA, which means where we go one, we go all. And it's a it's a line from a, a movie that Q uh, apparently referenced, and and it's become the, the the slogan. There's the idea of the Great Awakening. That's another one, Great Awakening, and that refers to the process through which people's minds will be opened to the Q message. The Red Pill. That's something that's that's not unique to Q, but which they they use a lot. So you know this sort of take the red pill idea. Dark to light. So describing that's another one. Dark to light. Describing the process. You know by by which the sort of forces of darkness will be um, brought out into the light, the deep state and all that, and the, the pedophile elites will all be revealed and um, in the light of you know truth. Um, trust the plan is another one because they're they're always <laughs> it's it's pretty hard being a, a QAnon follower because you you're set up for all these disappointments because yeah. Q is always making predictions, you know, oh next month, you know, on this this date. 
the arrests are all going to happen. You know, it's finally happening, and all, you know, and, and then nothing happens, and then everybody starts saying, "Trust the plan." Trust, and Q starts saying, "Trust the plan." You know, we had to change tactics, but we're going to, you know, it's a different. Wait till next month, and then there's going to be, all, you know, so that's another one, and and then it's going to be biblical. That's that's a, a common one. It comes from a, a movie called Law Abiding Citizen that um, that Q referenced. I think that gives you a general idea. The, I should mention, I, I as I got into QAnon, um, I also got into a. There's a podcast called QAnon Anonymous, um, which I, I really highly recommend if you're interested in QAnon at all. They've got tons of episodes now, and they've been covering it in pretty great detail um, from a sort of critical and humorous perspective. If you really want to find out about QAnon and, and you want to make sure you don't get sucked into it, that you don't get red pilled yourself, you know, <laughs> then that's a <laughs> That's a good good way to go is QAnon Anonymous. I was reading your article entitled The Red-Pilled Pope of the Catholic Church, and you linked to that uh, QAnon Anonymous podcast in the uh, body of your, your article there. From QAnon to the disgraced Archbishop Vigano, recently, within the last, what, couple weeks, he wrote a three-page letter to President Trump basically encouraging him and I guess trying to claim that all the protests and the COVID-19, everything was part of a larger deep state global cabal conspiracy. I guess maybe before we go too far, maybe tell the listeners real quick uh, who Archbishop Vigano is, because he's a controversial figure. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. So he was the, the papal nuncio to the United States, um, so a, a very you know high-ranking um, person um, in the church, and that was up until I think 2016, I think, and then after that he appeared again um, in 2018 in a very dramatic way in the media. Um, he wrote, I think it was August 2018, he wrote a, a letter of accusation um, against the Pope and against others in the church, alleging a a vast cover-up regarding the uh, person who was then Cardinal um, Theodore McCarrick, who was, uh, who we know now and who had been in the news because um, some cases of uh, abuse in his past, uh, sexual abuse um, of seminarians, and in some cases, uh, boys. This came to light. This was a huge scandal. Vigano wrote this letter saying that the Pope and others within the church had essentially, they, that they knew about this and that they covered it up. And he called for the Pope to resign, which is uh, really kind of an unprecedented thing in the Catholic Church, this kind of open call for the Pope to resign. He became a sort of hero of the Catholic right, I guess you could say, Um, in part too, because he, Vigano alleged that there was a sort of homosexual network within the church that that allowed McCarrick to rise and that was covering up um, his crimes and that was covering up other cases of of abuse within the church. So people who didn't like Pope Francis, they they thought this is a good way to sort of you know attack Pope Francis. Vigano is our guy, um, and we can take down all these sort of liberal um, or liberal leaning uh, bishops that that uh, Vigano had identified. Now, a lot of the claims that Vigano Vigano made either fell apart or in the end were largely sort of unfalsifiable. It all had a very paranoid ring to it. Um, Vigano himself went into hiding 
um, because I, I guess he believed that uh, his his life may be in danger, and he's stayed in hiding um, ever since then. But he's continued to release statements and, and interviews and, and letters to Catholic media, and especially to sort of ultra-conservative or traditionalist Catholic media. So um, sites like LifeSite News uh, is one that, that he's used uh, before. And over time, his statements have become more and more paranoid and conspiratorial in tone. And he now basically believes that the church since the 1960s or as it's been since the 1960s, is essentially a, a false church and that's been infiltrated by Masonic ideas. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, he doesn't even really believe that Pope Francis is the real Pope and uh, he's essentially in, in, in some kind of state of schism. But so far, Pope Francis hasn't directly uh, disciplined him or anything and has, has not actually directly responded to the things that Vigano has, has said. Um in the end, I think that's been very wise, though, because most of the things that, that Vigano has claimed have kind of fallen apart under further investigation. All of this has only served to show how incredibly paranoid Vigano has, has become and how detached from the mainstream of Catholic thinking. Yeah, I I want to also say to that effect as well that uh, at the time when the Vigano letter dropped, Pope Francis, I believe, was in the middle of a trip or winding down a trip to Ireland. And when reporters brought this to him, his answer was basically, you're the reporters, you investigate. And he's really been silent since then regarding Vigano. And I know people are critical of him for being silent, but I think in the long run, that strategy has been wise because Vigano has kind of exposed himself in his own words as being on the fringe and kind of a lunatic. Yeah, and I, I think that's just simply Pope Francis's way of doing things. He, he doesn't like to sort of act as the uh, authoritarian clamping down on any kind of dissent. I think he likes to, to let people speak their minds. And if people are going to be really far out there, like, like Vigano, he'll, he'll let them um, show themselves. He'll let them kind of come out into the light so that uh, people can see just how strange and, and paranoid they actually are. And it's, it's worked very well, actually. <laughs> yeah, it really has. So to this recent letter, mm -hmm. um, kind of break down for our listeners, what did the letter contain? What was Vigano's message uh, to President Trump? Yeah, so his, his message, and this was addressed directly to, to President Trump, he essentially compared himself to Trump, but also showed how he's interpreting Trump's mission as a politician. And he says at the beginning of the letter, I've got, I've got it right here. He says, in recent months, we have been witnessing the formation of two opposing sides that I would call biblical, the children of light and the children of darkness. So what he's saying, and I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase what he's talking about here. He's saying there's basically two groups of people in the world. They're sort of the, the good people who try their best and, you know, maybe they're not they're not perfect, but they, they strive for moral uprightness and holiness. And then there's another group of people who are fundamentally evil, um, who try to destroy everything that's good, who are working in a very conspiratorial fashion, who who have the upper hand in most of the world. He says in another paragraph, he says, these two sides 
which have a biblical nature, follow the clear separation between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. So he's talking about the, the children of Eve or Mary on the one hand, and then the children of Satan on the other hand. That's the, the basic message. A little further down, he says, it appears that the children of darkness who we may easily identify with the deep state, which you wisely oppose and which is fiercely waging war against you in these days, have decided to show their cards, so to speak, by now revealing their plans. And he uh, he brings in the coronavirus stuff. He had written a, a letter um, or a statement uh, a little earlier um, basically criticizing the whole response to the the coronavirus and and adopting a a very conspiratorial attitude towards it, that this was some, you know, kind of false um, idea that was being foisted upon humanity as part of an effort to create a, a one world government. So he's kind of got this new world order conspiratorial thinking. This kind of thinking, first of all, it's, it's very Manichaean. It goes, it enters into a sort of dualism I think mm-hmm. that's actually very strange for uh, Orthodox Catholicism, um, this idea of dividing the world into two opposing forces, you know, the, the forces of, of God and the forces of Satan. Um, I mean, there's some biblical basis for that, but, but generally we don't think of uh, good and evil that way as being in this kind of locked in, a, I think at one point he calls it in an eternal battle. Um, it's like Star Wars, where you have the light versus the darkness, and they're kind of locked co-equally in battle. Ab- absolutely, yeah. It's it, There's none of the of the complexity, um, a moral complexity of understanding that you get in, in regular Catholicism um, or mainstream Catholicism. It's uh, everything's all good or all bad. And um, it's just this great battle, an apocalyptic battle between the two. Um, and th- this is actually like, it, it's pretty common in sort of traditionalist thinking um, within the church that you get this, this sort of Manichaean attitude showing up. But it's really, really um, emphasized here. And this is, it's just, it's unprecedented how he's injecting this idea into American politics um, in such a, a public way and then associating himself with this. He says that just like Donald Trump is fighting the deep state, Vigano says that he's fighting the deep church. So just as there are infiltrators and conspirators um, who are working to, um, you know, enslave humanity uh, in the world at large. There are also infiltrators and conspirators within within the church seeking to turn it into some kind of Masonic parody of what of what Catholicism is supposed to be. This, uh, this children of light, children of, of darkness language, uh, that's the, the part that really stood out to me at the, the very beginning, in part because I will admit there are some like racial undertones there when we're talking about, because he, he also references the the riots that have been going on in the state. So he, he wrote this and sent this right at the, you know, the peak of that tension. So when you start portraying Trump as this, you know, the leader of the children of light against the children of darkness in the midst of that, uh, what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it takes on some some serious, you know, racial connotations there that are very disturbing. It could also be a reference to, uh, I've looked into this a little bit, one of the, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls 
there's an apocalyptic text. And again, this is not an orthodox text. Um, it's a sort of, you know, often a, a sect um, of, of Judaism. And it is, this text is called uh, The War of the Sons of Light Against the Sons of Darkness. And it describes this sort of apocalyptic battle in, in very Manichaean terms. Another thing that, that stood out to me with um, this letter was because I, I, I've been sort of following what's going on in QAnon and then following what's been going on in the sort of mega movement at large, I noticed some keywords that, that, that stood out. I mean, first of all, the idea of the children of light and the children of darkness, this, this light versus dark thing, it's, it's very big in QAnon. One of their slogans is this dark to light, but QAnon is, is extremely Manichaean. It's, it's the idea that, you know, there are the good people in the world and then there are people who are just utterly depraved, satanic. They have to be completely destroyed. So that was, that was one thing that stood out. Also, he uses this term invisible enemy in the letter and he, um, I believe he italicizes it as well. Um, he italicizes certain key terms like deep state and then invisible enemy. Invisible enemy is is a term that's used within QAnon because shortly, again, not too long before this letter was written, uh, Trump made a tweet talking about the coronavirus, saying that we're fighting an invisible enemy. And QAnon people, of course, didn't read it on its face value. They found an esoteric meaning and they said, oh, he means invisible. And he's not talking about coronavirus. He's talking about the invisible enemy of the deep state, right? So it feels like Vigano was using that term and sort of emphasizing it as a way of, I, I kind of think of these as like hooks for people who are into the QAnon sort of language or the mega sort of language. Um, so invisible enemy was one of them. And then another term was uh, biblical that he used. So at the beginning, he says, I've been witnessing the formation of, of two opposing sides that I would call biblical. And he italicizes and capitalizes that word. Um, and then again, the second paragraph, he says, these two sides which have a biblical nature. And again, he italicizes, capitalizes that word. It just seems so strange to me when I read it at first, because it just it just seemed like an odd turn of phrase to say something is biblical. It's not something that that I hear too often within within the church. You might hear it more um, in, in in Protestant contexts when people are saying it's this is something that's rooted in the text of the Bible itself. But to say that this sort of moral battle that's going on is biblical sounds a bit slangy to me. This idea of this word biblical is very common in the QAnon world and. It comes from this phrase, it's gonna be biblical. And you can you can find memes and things that have this this phrase on it. And it comes from a movie called Law Abiding Citizen. To me, that that sounded like sort of Q-like language. It really seems like he's trying to kind of he's launching this sort of letter at Trump. Um, he probably didn't, he had probably had no idea if Trump would actually read it or not, but he knew that Trump followers would read it, at least. Um, and they would be able to relate to the language he's using. He doesn't use this kind of language in some of his other stuff where he's talking more specifically about the church. There, his language is much more in the sort of traditionalist Catholic um, vein. Um, but here he kind of adopts the, uh, the mega language. And I mean, he knows the United States. He knows it well. And I, I kind of feel like he's following all this stuff very carefully. Like he, he you know, he's, I, I think he's spending a lot of time on the internet to, to tell you the truth. 
Veganos on 4chan and Reddit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be, uh, you know, I think he absorbs a lot of this stuff. And I think he, also in the Catholic media world, I think he's reading a lot of LifeSite and, uh, and the Remnant and stuff like that. So he's, uh, he's, he's, become, he's become red-pilled, I think, you know, partly through the internet. So what, what really kind of confirmed to me um, that, that this was, you know, meant to resonate with the Q, uh, QAnon world and the mega world was that very, very soon, uh, I, forget, I think it might have been the next day after this letter came out, um, there was a Q drop that linked to the letter at the, the top. And then in the text of the, the Q drop, it quoted this passage from Ephesians that um, about the armor of God, um, which is a really common QAnon um, thing. So I was like, wow, this is wild. You know, Q has kind of taken the hook and he's, you know, he's actually pointing out this letter and now all the Q people are going to read this letter. And they did. They, you know, I, I watched it um, online and, and looked at some of the big Q influencers out there. Um, people like um, people like Praying Medic and uh, Jordan Sather. These are all guys on, on with huge numbers of followers on, on Twitter. Um, and they were all sort of rejoicing at this, this letter, um, which they thought just sounded incredible to them. And then not long after that, Trump retweets the or tweets the tweets out the letter and uh offers a, a thank you to to archbishop vigano which really blew my mind so now we've got millions and millions of people you know becoming aware of this letter becoming aware of of, of vigano even though trump and and many i'm sure many of his followers seem to think that that vigano actually has some kind of status in the church that he's not you know been sort of in a state of self-exile and, and shame but that really solidified it and so i've been i've been following to kind of see where this is going and seeing if this sort of q if the q community has absorbed this language of vigano and and they absolutely have and i i just um, yesterday, uh, so it was June June 29th, there were two Q drops that reprinted, because before Q had just linked to the letter, these reprinted the letter in full. So again, Q is bringing this up. And then today, June 30th, another Q drop uh, said, uh, I forget, the, the, just at the end of the Q drop, it said, we are living in biblical times children of light versus children of darkness united against the invisible enemy of all humanity q and that was the the so this some of these terms now even though they were kind of like drawn i think from from the sort of q um milieu to begin with they've now been reappropriated um by q and now they've become just kind of part of the q q lore an interesting thing too is that general Michael Flynn, who is in the Q world, he's basically a hero. They, they consider General Flynn to be one of the the people who's working with Trump against the deep state. You know, possibly a, a friend of Q kind of thing. Um, so he's like, when it comes to like public figures, besides Trump, I would say you know Michael Flynn is one of the biggest. He wrote an article yesterday in which he quoted Vigano. He said, uh, without actually uh, citing uh, Vigano, but I'll just, I'll just read a, a little bit of, of what he wrote. And he's using this sort of Manichaean language. He says, if the United States wants to survive the onslaught of socialism, if we are to continue to enjoy self-government and the liberty of our hard-fought freedoms, we have to understand there are two opposing forces. One is the children of light, 
and the other is the children of darkness. So he's, he's lifting that Vigano language uh, completely. So I think this Vigano letter has become now one of really the integral parts of the, the, the Q mythology and the, the, the Q sort of, I guess, you know, you can call it a religion. I think it's a, it's becoming its own. It's, it's, I'm not, I'm not definitely not the first to say that, but it's becoming its, its own sort of religion. That is so fascinating to me because you mentioned earlier that, you know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories that lambast the Catholic church or even QAnon, I guess, has considered the Catholic Church as being part of a vast global conspiracy. And yet this Vigano letter seems to have maybe opened a door for QAnon to infiltrate the Catholic Church, at least among the laity. And maybe the hierarchy, I don't know. I, I, I hope it hasn't gone too far into the uh, the hierarchy, but uh, I've, I've been worrying about this actually for you know a couple years now. Um, that this sort of paranoid rightist populism and QAnon specifically would sort of fuse with Catholicism in some way. And it seems unlikely because there, there is actually a, an anti-Catholic strain to a lot of it. So like within typical QAnon language, the church is actually often positioned on the side of the deep state, right? And on the side of the sort of pedophile elites. Um, and of course, the the abuse crisis in the church plays into that. So with, with, this Vigano letter, I saw like a lot of people, when it dropped, a lot of the QAnon people were saying like, I thought that Pope Francis and the church, I thought they were part of the, they sometimes call it the cabal, um, that, you know, they were part of this, they were part of the cabal and the people are like, no, no, this Archbishop Vigano, he's, he's the one who's like fighting against the cabal, so that he's on our side. So now that sort of traditionalist, um, populist wing of the church that that where Vigano is, is kind of held up as a, a bit of a hero um there is a real threat that that could fuse with the the mega movement in a, a serious way even more than it, than it than it has already i should say that there is some precedent for this kind of thing within the church and, and it's something that i think the church has often been fighting against but in the 19th century among catholics conspiracy theories flourished um, so anti-Masonic conspiracy theories. So like, I mean, the popes warned against Freemasonry, but there were sort of anti-Freemason conspiracy theorists who took it much further and, you know, created elaborate theories about, you know, Freemason plans and Freemason infiltration. There's anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, um, certainly among among Catholics, especially before World War II, much, much less so after World War II. But and, and again, I'm, I'm not the first to notice this, but QAnon is in some ways uh, very much a revival of a, one of the real archetypal conspiracy theories of all time, which is the, the conspiracy theory of the blood libel. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it goes back to uh, 1173 in England. And the blood libel is this idea that Jewish people or the Jewish community are kidnapping children and either crucifying them or using their blood to um, make matzo balls and things like that, you know. So, um, and it's usually around Easter that the, this happens, and it's a real. It's been a plague within the Catholic Church. This this, this idea of the blood libel. It, again, it first started in England, where there was a, a boy who was found murdered in this a town called uh, Norwich, and um, eventually this monk. Um, many years later, decades later, uh, tried to turn him into a saint by claiming that he'd been, you know, kidnapped and crucified and killed by uh, 
for the local Jews uh, as part of this ritual taking place around Easter. And historical research has shown there's no absolutely no basis for that uh, accusation. But these ritual murder accusations have come up again and again in European history. And you get these outbreaks of sort of mass hysteria that, that lead to pogroms in, in many cases. So it's this idea that there's a, a sort of enemy in our midst who wants to destroy everything we consider, you know, precious and holy. They want to go after our children. Um, you know, they actually, they kill children, they eat children. You know, that's, it's that sort of idea. And it's the very same thing that you see in uh, QAnon. So I, I, I get worried that there's this strain of Catholicism that could come out again. And especially with the the pro-life movement uh, within the church, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm pro-life. I, I, I support the pro-life movement, but there there are some in the pro-life movement who think this way about people who are pro-choice that they're, you know, pure evil. That they they just want to kill children. That you know, um, that they're they're sort of demonic. Um, that they treat abortion like a sacrament and that sort of thing. So it's not that much of a leap from saying you know Democrats want to kill unborn children to saying Democrats want to kill children that have already been born, um, you know, and maybe even your children sort of thing. Um, so again, you can move from sort of very legitimate things like the pro-life movement to, you know, if it takes on that, uh, what Hofstadter called the paranoid style, um, it can suddenly turn very ugly and, and, and become very removed from reality. So that's what I, that's what I worry about. You mentioned in your article that there's already been kind of this flirtatious relationship, if you will, between QAnon and the Catholic pro-life movement. Um, I think you mentioned that someone who manages the unplanned uh, movie Twitter handle posted some QAnon nonsense. Yes, that uh, that happened. Um, I think it was 2019. That was when Unplanned um, came out, and it was right in the midst of there was this whole thing about the the, the Unplanned account was allegedly suspended or something from Twitter, even though I don't think that that was true. But right when that happened, all of a sudden, the unplanned account dropped a, a tweet that contained the um, where we go one, we go all um, hashtag. And for me, it was like, oh, the alarm bells just went, you know, just went off. It's like, okay, this this idea is starting to, to work its way into the pro-life movement. And I now I, I haven't, thankfully, I haven't seen it become much more widespread. Although this idea of the deep state and the deep church, right after uh, Vigano um, wrote his his letter to Trump, uh, I saw uh, Father Frank Pavone did a, a show talking about uh, the deep state, deep church. And he's the sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't really call him a pro-life leader because he's he's sort of on the fringes in some ways because he's so uh, incredibly um, pro-Trump. Um, but he talked about Vicano's message and said that the you know he uses the same sort of Manichaean language. He's saying there's some in the church who are against me because because um, of my pro-life activism, and he called them you know, lying, wicked, crooked people. He says you know they're connected to the deep state, if not person to person, then in their very kind of, he said, left-wing radical philosophy and their, you know, that sort of thing. And he said that the deep church is is in bed with planned parenthood, right? So 
they're <laughs> they're all part wow. of this sort of network and he said they have the same methodologies as the deep state they lie about people they're corrupt they have nothing to do with jesus and he's you know eventually all is going to come out you know like it's all going to come out and i'm going to be uh, vindicated and and it's that same sort of language that, that you know one day we're going to get these you know these imposters these these people who are just fundamentally evil um, who have no respect for human life and, and we're going to we're going to bring them out we're going to expose them to the world that's again it's that same mentality so right now i'm seeing the mentality start to fuse and hopefully we we won't see the an actual like fusion deep fusion of QAnon specifically in the pro-life movement but i'm not all that optimistic actually i think, I think it'll, it'll probably happen there are there are some um you know, going online, there are some Catholic Q accounts where they try to fuse Q and Catholicism, but luckily they they seem to be the the smaller smaller accounts, and none, there's no big influencer out there who's who's doing it. I'm glad that they don't have a lot of following, but I have to say, and and again, congratulations to where Peter is for all the work that you guys do, because there there are some reasonable people out there who are saying, well, let's just ignore these people, just. Don't focus on them. Don't talk about them. Just disregard them. But these QAnon people do actually have some currency politically. And now they have an archbishop on their side. And then they're being promoted by Catholic media organizations. So what what should we do going forward? Should we ignore them? Should we admonish EWTN and Raymond Arroyo? What do we do? Well, I I guess the philosophy behind where Peter is, is that you can't ignore this stuff for too long. And, and I, I, I totally understand the criticism that, you know, if you if you pay attention to these people, you give them publicity and you you're actually kind of furthering their cause. It's better to just ignore them. And I do understand that. But I, I started following the sort of the, the populist movement as it grew on Twitter, like back in, you know, 2015 or so, we started seeing the rise of like the alt-right. That was uh, a big thing. Um, and they started to become very popular online. A lot of people started getting into this alt-right thinking, sort of new racialist sort of, you know, Nazi-ish kind of thinking. And I wondered if it was going to become, if it, I, I thought like, you know, this stuff, this stuff is just kind of, it's just online. It's just a kind of, you know, off in this fantasy world. But then I saw how this stuff actually had an impact on the, you know, 2016 election and the stuff that followed Charlottesville, all of that stuff. Um, I mean, luckily the alt-right kind of disintegrated a little bit after Charlottesville, after people after it did manifest itself in real life and people saw how ugly and violent and awful it was. So I, I think there's a real danger in ignoring this stuff. And I think you actually have to, you have to bring it out and you have to look at it and just provide a, a voice of sanity. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems that social media poses is, is that people get caught up in their own bubbles where they're only receiving information from from certain sources and again that's something that that was a, a huge problem in the around 2016 but it's still going on and sometimes you have to take these ideas out of these little bubbles where people are just kind of eating them up and uh bring them out investigate them um try to to you know, take a, a reasonable approach to them. And and that's, I think, one of the only ways of really dispelling the, the hold that these ideas have on people. So especially when it comes to conspiracy theory, 
you know, some people have said, you know, like a big problem on the internet right from its beginning was you had Holocaust deniers um, using the internet. Um, they they were one of the, you know, some of the, the earliest people setting up websites, it seemed. Um, people ignored them for a long time, but they, they fester, they grow, they're all talking to each other, so they're not hearing any outside opinions. And these communities form and they drag normal people into them. They, you know, people get red pilled right on this stuff um and the only cure for uh, getting so like deeply red pilled by this kind of conspiratorial thinking is to shift into a different context so start exploring ideas outside your bubble and i think that's what um i mean i, I can't speak for for mike lewis and, and the other guys where peter is but for me uh one of the reasons that i've brought out a lot of traditionalist conspiracy theory um onto where peter is and, and talked about it and analyzed it tried to look at it in a sort of you know level-headed way is that this provides a sort of broader uh, perspective as opposed to the kind of you know hothouse environment you get where you're only um, reading stuff from LifeSite News, you're only reading stuff from the Remnant, One Peter Five, and those kind of sites. It just kind of brings it out into the open, and uh, I, I hope anyway. And it, it seems to have had um, an effect on some people. You know, we do um, get emails from people saying, I, "I used to be, I was really kind of sucked into this this world of of conspiratorial thinking, and now I'm kind of coming to my senses." So that's that's very satisfying as we wrap up what is QAnon's future um it's hard to it's hard to say um the the, the people who uh, who run the uh QAnon anonymous podcast have been following um a number of people who are running for office within the u.s who are open uh QAnon followers um so that's that's disturbing i'm hoping that well i guess what i'm seeing when it comes to not just QAnon but the sort of larger mega discourse, the more extreme elements of it, is that they're retreating a little bit. They're, I don't know if you've, you've heard about this uh, Parler app, or Parlay, sorry, Parlay app, the new app that all of the uh, the sort of big big Trump uh, supporters are going to, and, and some Catholic uh, sort of right-wing, you know, Catholic people are, are moving on to because they say it's a you know, it's a more more of a free speech zone. They're moving away from Twitter. You, you get a lot of because um, there's been you know a bit of a clampdown on on, on this kind of on, on some of the more extreme uh, language. What I think we may be seeing is a sort of siloing off of this stuff. I mean, on the Parlay app, you can you can see there's just huge amounts of QAnon material. So it seems to be like a real breeding ground for that stuff. I think that might actually help to bring it to an end in some ways because you know when these people are just kind of shut off in a sort of separate environment like you know and with the parlay app you can't search it online you can't uh, you have to be on the app to actually see this stuff it's going to draw fewer and fewer people in so i'm hoping anyway that uh, that that kind of siloing effect will continue and that eventually i mean there are some people who are so deep into QAnon and similar conspiracy theories that they're not turning back there they've invested far too much into this and it's much more traumatic for them to admit they were wrong than it is to just keep 
keep going. They're quarantining. Yeah, you could say it's, you know, they, they think they're finding, um, you know, spaces for free speech. But as, as, as we see it, it's like, well, maybe this is good. They're quarantining themselves. Um, so there's, because, I mean, this kind of stuff really is like a virus. It, it does it does spread very easily. And, and I got to say, it's not, it's not just stupid people who uh, buy into it. It's uh, any kind of conspiracy theory. I mean, the, the people I was talking about at the beginning, you know, people like Ezra Pound, I mean, this guy was a genius. He was, you know, like an incredible mind. Um, and Wyndham Lewis as well. Um, even T.S. Eliot got, you know, a little, a little into it as, um, as well. It's, they, they got sucked into this kind of thinking. And if they can get sucked into it, anyone can. And it, it seems absurd when you think about it, that you know, reasonable people would would believe this sort of thing, but but it happens. It, it absolutely happens. I mean, I, I'm seeing a little bit of a, a retreat. It seems among you know, with Trump himself, um, you know, he's kind of retreating into sort of Twitter tantrums and things like that. And uh, it does feel like it's losing a bit of its effectiveness, you know. So um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. He might. Uh, these things can can erupt and spread very quickly but they can disappear just as quickly so we'll, we'll pray that people come to their senses um and uh yeah that, that no i mean the worst part about it is that you know there's there's good people um people you know who get sucked into this and it, it just it leads them you know especially if they're, they're people in the church it, it can lead them very far away from the church it can lead them into vegano territory and, and that's just absolutely tragic i think well thank you so much Dave, being on our podcast. My, my pleasure. Where can our listeners uh, find you and find your work? Probably the best place to find my work is at wherepeteris.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Right Scholar. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate it. Have a good one, man. All right. You too. All right. So in this segment of our show, Jose and I will each share one thing that we are reading or watching or listening to. Uh, so this week, what do you have for us? So I, now that I have a little bit of downtime, I've been trying to catch up on shows that I know, series that I've watched in the past that I know that the next season has either just been released or is just about to be released, right? And so I'm kind of going back and re-watching the last couple of episodes to make sure that I remember what it was like. Um, or shows that I've always wanted to watch, and I know the next season's coming out, so I'm like binging those bad boys, right? Okay. Yeah. So one show that I actually watched a while ago, uh, and the next season's coming out here pretty soon, is a show called The Expanse. And I think I might have talked about it before on here. The Expanse was originally a, a sci-fi network uh, uh um, show. It takes place in the future. Um, majority of the, of the show takes place in space. It's essentially a, a point in time in our history where we've colonized Mars, but Mars is still basically a big dead rock that we're trying to, to terraform. Then we have our folks on Earth. And then there's this group of folks called the Belters, and they live in this space in between. And they're essentially the blue collar workforce of both entities, right? And it's a really, really well written show. A lot of um, world building, which to me is great. Like, I really want to know where these people come from, what their backstory is. Uh, the first season, the couple of first couple of episodes are a little bit slower, but you realize right away that nobody's really safe on this show, so don't get too attached to any one character. And and but then when you do, you follow their arc, and it's very impressive. It's a very diverse cast, which I like too, right? So space is 
is a diverse place, you know, it's a, in the future. And so you get the, not just diverse diversity with ethnicities, but also in gender. And, and so I like that. I like seeing lots of different types of people on shows, right? And so far, the first, I think, three or four seasons have been great. So what happened was it was on uh, Sci-Fi Channel. It got canceled. Oh. And then there was this big campaign by by the the hardcore fans. I mean, they did things like banners behind airplanes and that kind of stuff, and sending letters to the to to other companies asking them to pick it up. So Netflix eventually picked it up and and started going with the series, which is great. And they really kicked up the production value once it went to to a streaming service, right? A little more money per episode, that kind of thing. So it's just visually, it's great. It's everything that that Star Wars wishes it was. Oh, what's the burn? <laughs> uh, because it's, it's great, well-defined characters and really great world building and very few random peripheral characters. Like everybody has a place and their place comes into full view as you move through the seasons. And then as some characters we lose, other characters that seem like they were just the, the sidekick or the secondary kind of become primary characters, which I like. Right. And, and for a reason, not just for the sake of filling spots. So that's The Expanse. If you want something cool to watch, watch The Expanse. And that's on Netflix? The Expanse is on Amazon Prime, not Netflix. So do not go to Netflix and look for it. You will not find it there. And that is not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like, a fact right there. That's a fact right there. The other thing that I've been, I went back and watched the last episode of was a show called Hannah. And Hannah is on Amazon, and it's based off of a movie of the same name. Hannah was a movie that was out several years ago. It started Liam Neeson, was, the, was one of the main characters, about this genetically modified young girl um, from birth who kind of becomes this super agent, and she's out searching for her biological family and the people who, who made her. It kind of sounds like Jason Bourne, but it's not. Because Jason Bourne is just kind of confused and angry all the time. This girl actually has a purpose. And, you know, it's just a young kid. So they essentially took the entire uh, uh, premise of, of the movie and turned it into a series. Fleshed the characters out some more, gave us some more backstory, gave us a little more in-depth uh, of the world that they all live in. Season two was just released. So today I was actually watching the first couple of episodes of season two, and they haven't disappointed yet. A lot of great action, a lot of great acting, and a really great storyline. So that's um, Hannah, and it is on Netflix. I'll have to check that out. I think you've told me about this show before. Like, she's a badass kid. Yeah, right? yeah, she really is, right? She's raised in the woods in the middle of nowhere in, in an attempt to keep her safe from, from the bad people. And, you know, her, the dad, who was kind of like her adopted dad, because he saved her from this evil corporation, and semi-corporation, semi-governmental entity that, that, that is harvesting these children and modifying them to be these super soldiers of the future. And so, you know, she really develops a really strong relationship with him. And you see that throughout the show, that, there is, a, there is a true kind of a father-daughter love. At the same time, he is clearly her protector, right? But then you realize very quickly that she doesn't really need a whole lot of protecting. That's awesome. Now I'll have to check that out. That That's on Amazon too, right? That's Amazon, yes. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Hannah. Hannah, yep. H-A-N-N-A, Hannah. Single name, like like Cher. <laughs> Sting. Sting, there you go. How about you, Jose? What do you? What have you gotten your teeth into that you're excited about? I, my wife and I are watching so much right now. I, I blame it on the pandemic, I guess. So we watched Eurovision, which stars Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. <laughs> okay, yeah. Go ahead, tell us about this. <laughs> okay, so we have just been harassed by 
our smart TV, by Netflix, by ads everywhere telling us to watch this movie. So yes. we finally caved in. We watched it. It's about a duo of Icelandic singers played by Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. And they are horrible. They're terrible musicians. <laughs> They're just painfully bad. And so they have dreams of going to the Eurovision competition. So they go to Iceland's preliminary competition. And through a really explosive, unfortunate event, they end up winning. And they move on to the Eurovision competition. Yeah, shenanigans ensue. Um, <laughs> now, is Eurovision, that's a real thing, right? That's a real thing. Okay, so yeah, tell us a little bit about what is Eurovision? It, it bas- it's basically like Europe's American Idol. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it's like Europe Idol, I don't know. <laughs> but it's a competition to see which country's musical superstars is that year's okay. winner, basically. So it's a big deal. It's a legit big deal which doesn't really need to be parodied because it itself is kind of a huge joke it's really bad (laughs) by american music industry standards it's really bad so it was kind of like just ripe i guess for being parodied um it's funny the movie's pretty funny it has its moments it's kind of hokey it's it if you liked Blades of Glory, you'll like this movie, I think. Okay. It's not Anchorman funny, but it's, you, know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, but the music is really good, actually. Obviously, Will Ferrell, he does his own his own uh, singing. <laughs> <laughs> Will Ferrell has the voice uh, oh of an angel. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But Rachel McAdams, she sings pretty well, but they actually ended up mixing her voice with an Icelandic singer named Molly Sandin. So they took both their voices for the songs Mm -hmm. and blended them into one voice. I don't know how they did it. Why? Rachel McAdams could sing, but she couldn't hit some notes. She couldn't sing as well. Okay. Oh, okay. They took this other gal's lyrics and in the studio somehow magically blended them. (laughs) <laughs> so, so that she could hit those notes. They doctored her voice up so that she would sound even better, and yes. they just let Will, Will Ferrell sing normal. Totally <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. It's hilarious. You know what? I'm going to watch it now. Because <laughs> she has a beautiful voice. Uh-huh. And, you know, Will Ferrell, he sings like Will Ferrell. <laughs> so, that, that alone, the music is legit. More cowbell. More cowbell, yes. <laughs> I love that. Oh, there's your dog. But yeah, I I recommend go watch Eurovision. It's on Netflix. Check it out. It's worth the time. It is. So. I'm going to put it on my uh, my queue. On your queue. Your queue and on. Yep. <laughs> no. <Yeah>. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this week. Thank you so much, Jose, for joining us. Thank you, Dave, for joining us as well. Um, and thank all of you listeners for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge favor, though, by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, or Apple iTunes. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Conversation on Tap. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. Cheers, Jose. Cheers. Thanks a lot for having me. Woo! <laughs> we'll have to have you on again soon, Jose. Right on, brother.